The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. All right. Yeah, that sounds good. So... This is exciting. A lot of new stuff today, right? That was, I really like that, Mark. You guys did good. That was great. Um, So anyway, uh, today we're continuing uh, the seven letters. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I wasn't going to throw this out there. Um, uh, Of course, today's March 26, 2023. How many people here remember Y2K? (laughs) We've almost forgotten about it, right? This is like another, it wasn't like COVID, but it was another of those things like, is this it? And so anytime you're in Revelation, you're always like, oh, I don't know about this book. You know what I'm saying? So, so I was thinking about Y2K, and for those of you who weren't in it, as irrational as it sounds, we thought the world was going to end. <laughs> and anybody here who denies it, even that night on New Year's Eve, I promise you that you were on your knees going, just in case all the computers shut off and there's no power, please let those dried beans that I bought from PTL... Work really well, and we're going to be able to eat. Right? Right? We did that. Remember generators? Generator sales went out the roof. It was like the Amazon of 1999. Like, they made a fortune. One of my neighbors got a generator, just a small one, and they were like, we're set. They were out there. They put gas in it, and they weren't thinking, you got to get gas too, so you better hope the pumps are crank or something. And they fired it up. And, you know, I don't know if it's like a rod and lawnmower. You're not talking about the, I'm not talking about these $20,000 generators that you can't tell they're running. And they were like, is it always that loud? And I said, yeah, it's great because everybody in the neighborhood will know who has electricity. <laughs> That's where I'm going, right? If your lights are on, I'm coming over. But anyway, so, so, so we thought there was a glitch in the computers that it, it, that on New Year's Eve that everything was going to shut down because we wouldn't know how to work without the computers. Anyway, shame on us. But, but that same thing, Revelation kind of generates that. So that's our little funny story to get us going, the, the stuff that goes through my brain. Um, so anyway, if you don't know, my name is Jimmy Branch. I'm one of the elders or pastors here at Steadfast and uh, do the biblical counseling. If you are curious about what that is, it does have involve the Bible and counseling. Um, and you can reach out to me and we can talk about that a little later because there's a lot to talk about in this little chapter, half chapter here. Um, uh, so today, and if, also if you're new, normally Brian Robbins, who is our lead uh, pastor, lead shepherd, is, uh, is not here. He's taking a break that he really, really needed um, uh, this weekend. Uh, but I urge you to come back and hear him. I always say that. You can tell he studies. You can tell he puts so much into it. And the Lord has truly gifted him to speak. So today we're in Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And real quick, just to get a little context if you haven't been here, uh, we have been going through the seven letters of Revelation. These are in the beginning there, of course, chapter 3, where it's written by the Apostle John. And it's written to him while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. And um, if you guys could get that map up, if you can, um, of these seven churches. But he's on uh, the island of Patmos, and he's been exiled. And we know that simply because in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, John says that he has been exiled there on the account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. Now let that rest, let that sink for just a second there. So he's in exile um, because of the word of God, because of Jesus. 
Uh, he doesn't have to stay there. Good news, he does get to go back to Ephesus at some point um, as there's a change in, in leadership within the government and stuff. So he is able to return. But while he's here, it's for, right, he needed to be there. God used that. And this is actually, this is hot off the ground right here. God used that for him to be on that island in exile so that he, Jesus could have that time with him to speak these words and to show him what was going to happen and to send it out to the church. And sometimes when we're in exile, we're in this place that's tough, we're there for a reason. God's got you there for a reason because he's, he's wanting to do a work and he's wanting you to listen to what he has to say. So anyway, we know he's there. Uh, these letters were given to John through revelation and vision from Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. Um, and that's Jesus Christ. I want to say this. This has been important. That is Jesus Christ who gave this to him. That is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Today, I want to emphasize who Jesus is, how awesome he is. I heard a commentator the other day. It was on some or on a, a podcast. It was some guy from Australia. And he said, you Americans have ruined the word awesome. And we have because I use it for sandwiches. I'm like, that's such an awesome sandwich. So it kind of detracts from what it is when we say it with God. And you know that that word awesome is only ascribable to him. Think about that. So anyway, uh, he did this. Jesus gave these letters. Of course, there's a lot he's going to uh, say but he gave them to encourage and rebuke the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now you'll say, well, why did he just choose those seven churches in Asia Minor? Um, it doesn't matter because they are, we're reading them right now. We all got those letters. And that's part of, part of the purpose. These letters were bound together. He says that into a book. Jesus says, put them into a book. He doesn't say put them into individual letters. He says, put these in a book and send them to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Um, therefore, all of these churches would have read all these books. And that's, for some of us, we're like, yes, we get to read somebody else's mail. And so, so this is good mail, too, because there's some juicy stuff in there, right? Some people are called dead. That's pretty tough words there. But, but um, so the beauty of reading other people's mail, now I'm not condoning reading other people's mail. Do not read other people's mail because you are breaking other commandments when you do that. But, but in this situation, Jesus ordained it that way because when you can see, these churches got to see what other people were being called out for and what other people were being condemned for. So even the two, only two churches didn't get a rebuke. They're able to look at these other churches and go, we better not do that. We better watch out for the false teachers. We better watch out for how we've lost our first love and vice versa. Those who were called out, they're able to look at Smyrna and Philadelphia, the church we're on today and say, well, how come they get all the praise? So, so this is good stuff. So this would have made that circuit. Do you guys have that? Do you have a map? If you don't, it's okay. There we go. So if you can't really see it, but there's a little island off of Ephesus here, kind of like where that's pointing. That's where John's located right now. So these seven letters, um, they were bound into a book um, and they were, there was a trade route. So it would have hit Ephesus and made one big, huge movement. And so we're at Philadelphia. I think next week is Laodicea, right, Mark? Yes. So, so it began in Ephesus and swung around, and then it would come back to Ephesus. Um, <clears throat> so all seven letters are for our benefit and for our rebuke. He, he who loves his children, it says because God loves us, he chastises. If he's not chastising and you're not calling you out on things that you, or you're just not missing it, then there's a problem there too. Because here it's out of love. He's saying, I want you to do what you're supposed to do, and it's for your benefit, not for, for his 
so these seven churches are all part of that major tra- trade route, which would have made it easier for them all to carry. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Revelations 3, 7 through 13. If uh, Open your Bibles to chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, um, there should be some in the pews. And if you don't own one, that's yours. You can have it. Um, so let me read. So this is Jesus uh, speaking to John and telling him to write this down. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. So let me pray and get me calmed down. So I'm kind of like a faucet. Like once this stuff starts, I just start going and people are like, you got to slow down, Jimmy. You got to slow down. So I've got to keep that in my mind. So I'm going to try to pause and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does today. Um, But let me pray just to help get me unsettled, first of all, and get all of us settled. So Father, we just come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to return another Sunday, to worship you, to lift you up, to glorify your name, and that we would remember the gospel. We would remember why we're here, that um, we don't deserve it, but you loved us so much. You came and you died in our place. You rose from the grave. You delivered us from death and hell, and that we would focus on you and your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we go. So I'm going to break these first two verses down, uh, or the first verse, Revelation 3, 7. We're going to break it into two parts, A and B. So the A part is, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. That's our first one. So real quick, the angel represents the pastor, if you didn't know that. Um, Angel also meant messenger, and we can see that interchangeably when Paul in Galatians says, even if an iron angel comes to you with a different gospel, uh, reject it. He's not just talking, they're obviously could be demonic angels that bring you another gospel. I think there would be a lot of red flags on that, but, but the angel could be another messenger. So here it's saying, take this to the, the pastor of the church in Philadelphia or write this to them. So Philly facts, and that's the only time I'll use Philly. Because uh, everybody says that, the city of brotherly love. Never been there, but I'll take your word for it, that it's brotherly love. So first, there's no rebuke. There's no rebuke. And so uh, they're one of two churches I forgot to get this paper clip off here. Um, they're one of two churches um, that didn't get a rebuke. Jesus kind of gives them the thumbs up. He says, you're doing what's right. And we're going to see. So we're going to get to see that today. Of the other, other churches, when we look at this, these rebukes, you have forsaken your first love. Uh, you hold to false teachings. Um, you tolerate immorality and idolatry. That's pretty huge. You're dead. 
That would be a tough one, right? Like, I mean, all of them are tough, but it sounds like, if Jesus is like, you're dead. Um, and then lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. That's coming up next week, so I won't spoil that too much. So, so Philadelphia is one who did not get a rebuke. So let's see, let's look at that. For, but first, let's learn a little bit about um, uh, Philadelphia. Their enemies came from the outside, not the inside. Um, there is no mention of heresy or division. That's pretty, pretty good. That's pretty amazing, actually, because most churches have a little bit of that going on somewhere. The enemy's always trying to creep in. They had a lot in common with Smyrna, which I just mentioned. That they, neither one of them got blame, only praise. And both of them suffered from those who called themselves Jews, but were not. We'll get into that. Both seemed to be persecuted by the Romans. We know that historically. And both told the, the opposition, is sat- both of them were told by Jesus that the opposition is satanic. Um, and both were promised a crown. Philadelphia's greatest distinction was that it was strategically located uh, on this Roman road that ran from Rome to Troy, Pergamum, Sardis, and on to Philadelphia. And that's important. That's super important. Not just this trade or the trade route. You don't have to put it back up. Not just the trade route. Um, This city was also prosperous in part from this strategic positioning and its agricultural benefits. Uh, A lot of grapes. They did a lot of grape growing there. Uh, A lot of volcanic activity too, which may have helped that. Uh, So... But what I mean by this is very strategic, uh, is even in ancient times, it was called the gateway of the east. The gateway of the east. It, it lay, uh, beyond it lay the whole central plain of Asia Minor. So there was a lot of traveling going on here. Um, uh, people who were trying to get from Rome to Ephesus were coming through this. Uh, lots of people going in and out. Um, <clears throat> Um, so the, the population included both, of course, Jews, Jewish Christians, Romans, and Greeks, because originally it was built as a Greek city, um, and it suffered from earthquakes. Now, still, this town still exists today. I love that. When you are reading stuff from then and you go, oh, this is still around. It's like still a place. It's still alive. It's actually, and that is now all Turkey. That's what's called, what we call in modern times Turkey. And the name of the town is, is Alasir. Uh, still exists. It was founded in uh, circa 140 BC uh, by uh, this leader named Italus II Philadelphus, and that's where we get Philadelphia from. Uh, he was from he was from Pergamum, um, and that's how the city got its name. Now it was intended by him. This is really cool. This shows you how God changed. It was intended by him to be a center of missionary activity, not for Christianity, but for the Hellenistic way of life. That's the Greek way of life. He wanted to get it out there. It's when Greek was powerful, and they were trying to get this information out there. To uh, it's the Greek history, the language, the culture. So what he intended for that, Jesus is like, okay, you're setting this up for me, or of course Jesus had him set it up for him, or, or God did that. Um, but by this point, we're under Roman control. The city actually suffered from a really bad earthquake. We know this historically in AD 17, and then the, uh, the they re- they received a Roman or imperial assistance. Uh, to rebuild. Therefore, they were loyal to Rome. So the same things that we have today, when a city falls, someone else is like, let's help you rebuild. But with this, it's in the Roman, it's in the Roman province. Now, promise I'm going to slow down now that we've got through that. Um, Revelations 3, 7b. And this is one of my favorite parts of all this scripture. Uh, he is, it's, let me just read it. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So for you note takers, you can put this, a Christ-centered church sees Jesus as awesome. 
A Christ-centered church sees Jesus as awesome. So, he is the holy one. He is the holy one. That was only ascribed to God in the Old Testament. And here we have in this holy one, we have the idea of purity and separateness. There is none like him. Um, and then it goes on, it says, he is the true one. He is, and that means by truth. I mean, this is, this is tough, but for him, it, he is completely reliable. He is completely reliable. Now, I found this other little great list here as I was going through some of this, and it talks about the names that were used for Jesus in Revelations. The names that were used to describe Jesus in Revelation. Wrong list. <clears throat> Here's just a few. Of course, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He who is, he who was, and who is to come. He is the Almighty, Son of Man, the first and the last, the living one, the one who holds the seven stars, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the Son of God, he who has eyes like flame of fire, he whose feet are like burnished bronze, he who, scores, he who searches the minds and hearts, he who has the seven spirits of God, he who is holy and is true, he who is, has the key of David, faithful and true witness. Line from the tribe of Judah, root of David, he's called the lamb 28 times. Lord, holy and true. The Lord, their Lord who was crucified, King of the nations, Lord of lords, King of kings, Word of God, and the bright morning star. That's just a few. So let's think about our King. Let's think about our Lord and our Savior. Do we hold Him in that place? Do we see Him as awesome? Really? Here, Jesus is pictured, here, He, he is pictured as holding the key of David. The key of David. Now, this is an illusion of King Hezekiah's steward, uh, Eliakim. And I'm going to get that name wrong several times. So it's the same guy. I'll just pronounce it different three or four times. Mentioned in 2 Kings 18 and Isaiah 22. He, too, held the key of the house of David, which gave him free access to the palace and all the king's wealth. God had given him... God had given him this access. So let me read that again. He too held the key of the house of David, which gave him free access to the place and all, all the king's wealth. And so God had given him this access. If you go back and you look in, in 2 Kings, it says that God says, I'm taking this and I'm giving it to, to Eliakim. See, I said it different. So in that access, uh, he was, had access to all the treasure of the house. Um, in, Revelation, <clears throat> in Revelations 1, 18, Christ is described as having the keys to death and hell. That's in Revelation 1, 18. That is the power, Jesus has the power over salvation and judgment. <clears throat> so here, what it is saying is that Jesus also has the keys to the heavenly kingdom and its spiritual treasures. So just as Eliakim, or Laakim, I'll get it wrong a bunch of times. He had been given this treasure. He'd been given this key. He could have access to everything inside of the, the palace. Everything. He wasn't the king, but he had access to it. So here it's saying that Jesus 
has, of course, has access to that, but he has, he has the, the key. Here it is saying he also has the keys to the heavenly kingdom and his spiritual treasures, everything in it. I'm getting like a lot of kickback. Sorry, that's why I was getting distracted there. Yeah, there we go. It's better, much better. Um, it might just be me getting louder, but it was really pushing back on me. And, um, Father, I just pray you get me back on track here mentally. <laughs> so um, Christ has free access to the heavenly place. He alone can take us into the Father's house. Only he, he says, you only come to the Father through Jesus. He has the keys. He has the keys to all the treasure spiritually. And that's what's most important, Right? As Christians, we always get this. Well, they talk about streets of gold. It's not about the streets of gold. It's about who made those streets. It's all an allusion to how great and how mighty and powerful everything he has is. It's not about that stuff. Those are just the best way the author could describe those things. <clears throat> the phrase, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, refers to his divine sovereignty. Now, I want to stop there. The first time I read that, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I mean, I don't know. I know people are like DC or Marvel or I don't know any about that stuff. So like I've seen some of the movies. But as far as a superhero, let's think about this. Let's read that again. Who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. It's emphatic. It's not, well, there is one dude who has the special kryptonite that can get this open. No, it's, he's the ultimate, he is the ultimate power. Whatever he chooses to do gets done. He cannot be overcome. I have literally, I will tell you this, over the years I have talked with people who are, you know, they follow Satan or they, they're into the occult. And we have this conversation and I'm like, well, it just amazes me because they hate God so much first of all, and they just want to live in their own sin. But I'm like, you know you're going to lose, right? Yeah, I know I'm going to lose. You need to reevaluate. I don't know. I'm on this guy's side. You know what I'm saying? And think about it. It's your king. This is your king. You got nothing to worry about. You haven't got a king that can be overthrown and taken down. He's got it. It's already been written. It, it's just taking place. He, nothing can pluck us out of his hand. He's the ultimate power. Let's move on. I'll dwell there. I'll just keep dwelling there. So Revelations 3, 8, and, uh, Revelations 3, 8, and verse 9. He says this. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So for note takers, a Christ-centered church is faithful to the gospel. A Christ-centered church is faithful to the gospel. So Jesus had set before them an open door, not just spiritual, eternal connection with the kingdom, but one of witness sharing the gospel. And the reason I throw that in there, not just spiritual, because there are some commentators that say that that's, that's some of what's going on here. He's saying, I've opened this door for your salvation and nobody's gonna close it. And I absolutely agree with that. You follow Jesus, you put your trust in him and you patiently endure, nobody's gonna do anything about that. 
But what it's also talking about here is sharing the gospel. This position they had where they were at, they were this gateway to the east. They're staying true to his word and to him. They're not denying his name. And that's all they need to do. The Holy Spirit's doing everything else. So it's about sharing the gospel. That's what we're gonna look at, that witness. A Christ-centered church is faithful to the gospel. I'll read that again. You know, Jesus did that. You've heard pastor say this. Preachers, uh, Jesus repeated things often. And I think it was because he knew people just weren't hearing it the first time. <laughs> so he had to say it a second time. Also, he's putting emphasis on that. So anytime I repeat something two times, there's emphasis. Um, they needed encouragement. This church at Philadelphia needed encouragement. And they're doing good. You're like, Jimmy, they're doing good. They're doing good, but they're in the hot seat. When the synagogue of Satan is coming after you, I don't know how many people here have had the synagogue of Satan come after them lately, but I'm thinking that's not something I want to be a part of. They needed encouragement. They were told no one can shut this door. But they continued to be faithful, just as said, and they they continued to confess the name of Jesus in this opposition. Now, this is what a part I love here. Uh, He says, they had little power. He said, I know you have little power. Doesn't that make you feel kind of good in a way? I mean, I know the little power doesn't feel good, but that your Lord and Savior, the one who is all-powerful, looks at you and goes, I know you got little power. But it's not your power that we're doing this with. It makes me think of Psalm 103. Psalm 103, 14 to be exact, but I would read the whole Psalm. In that, David says, you know we are but dust. That was one of the most refreshing Psalms I ever read. What? You wanna be called dust? Absolutely. He took this dust and he made, he made us out of dust. But it, what it's, he's saying in that is, look, he knows we're dust, he knows our heart. And at the end of the day, we're to look to him. It takes all the pressure off me when I realize I'm just dust, loving Jesus and moving forward. So they had little power, but they were faithful. They kept his word and did not deny his name. I know I've said that more than twice, but that's important. So, so note, um, Someone, uh, someone I come across wrote this. They said, this positive focus on their, perse- their uh, persevering witness is another piece of evidence pointing to the likelihood that witness is the prevailing theme of all the letters. And I had to think on that. And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's that. But then I got to thinking, every one of these churches, their witness was tarnished. People were looking at it going, that's a false teacher. You people are doing totally opposite of what this church over here is doing. You've got all this stuff coming in, this immorality. Their, their witness is gone. They were dead. Even, even those who are doing these things that are showy, people are looking at it going, that's religion. It's their witness. Verse nine, the synagogue of Satan. I know you guys have been wanting to get this. It's not gonna be as exciting as you thought it would be. The reference to the synagogue of Satan, first of all, is not meant to be anti-Semitic. It's not meant to be anti-Semitic. Two major reasons why not is the guy writing the letter is Jewish and the guy telling him what to write is also Jewish. So it's not anti-Semitic. What he's trying to remind, or what it's trying to tell us is remind us that Satan is the source of all religious persecution. No matter where it's at, even if it's happening in a church. 
The persecution is coming from, from Satan. They think they're doing right. Paul thought he was doing right when he was going out and getting Christians and dragging them in and having them put to death. He thought he was doing right when he held their coats as, they were, as, as Stephen was stoned. Undoubtedly, these people thought, because they were rejecting Jesus, that they had the, this true religion, but it wasn't. It was hurting people, and it was attacking those. And Jesus is having to say the same thing that he said to Paul. Why are you persecuting me? <clears throat> so it seems that this is probably the primary source of opposition to the Philadelphia church, just as we had mentioned in Smyrna, because it's mentioned with them. Um, so the Jews, not those who are in the church in Philadelphia, most likely had taken advantage of sort of their privilege. Now, we know in the movies that uh, the Romans are already hard, always really rough on the Jews, but they did allow the Jews to live and be in their places and do things. It was only when the Jews really kept pushing it with them that they would lash out and jump in. Uh, Jesus, the Romans were drug into that. The Romans didn't go looking for Jesus to crucify him. The Jews drug them in. That happened with Paul when he was in, um, maybe it was Ephesus, I can't remember, wherever he was at. Maybe it wasn't Ephesus. But the Jews drug the local government into it. Um, but they were taking advantage of that privilege, maybe. And uh, they were going to the city or they were going to the Romans and saying, look, this isn't, these aren't real Jews. See, they were getting the gospel all mixed up. But they were saying, these aren't, they aren't doing it right. They're wrong. And they were pushing back on them. They were trying to cause problems for the local, for the Philadelphian church. Um, but remember, this church, the Philadelphia church, was most likely composed of Jews and Gentiles. Both Jew and non-Jew. So these Jews who did not believe in Jesus claimed to be the true gathering. They were saying, we're the true gathering, not these Christians. The true, they're saying they're the true synagogue but of God, but they were actually the synagogue of Satan according to Jesus because they rejected him. They rejected the one who had the key of David, the Messiah. True Jews are those who belong to Jesus. Don't have to argue with me about that. Uh, Paul says it in Romans 2, 28 through 29. He says it in Galatians 6, 16, and he says it in Philippians 3, 3. If you want to argue about it, go to the Word and argue with Paul or God. Your best son. I'm just telling you what the Word says. So he talks about they will come to you and confess. They will bend their knee. They will bow down. And this, I, I thought about this. This will take place in two way, take take place in two ways. In the end, these unbelievers, these Jews who don't believe he's the Messiah, will eventually be saved. That's another witness they got going on here. They'll be saved, and then they'll come and go, he, he really does love you. He really does love you. Let me be a part of this. Or, and that's what Revelations is, a lot of it's about, or they'll bend their knee when judgment comes. You really did love these, and I you really did love them. They'll have to admit it. It says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That's a pretty powerful uh, superpower there, comic book-wise. If we're talking about that power thing, like it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Once again, why would you want to be on the losing side? It's absolute. It's emphatic. <clears throat> but despite this opposition, the church at Philadelphia is promised an open door of evangelistic and missionary opportunities. And we're going to find out why. 
Why are they promised this door? They're staying, staying true to him and they're staying true to his word. Keep it simple. It's the gospel. That's one of the things that I appreciated so much. We started coming to what was Messio probably 10, somewhere between 10 and 12 years ago. And the thing, there was a lot of things that drew me. But one of the things I appreciated is that Brian made sure every message had the gospel in it. It was gospel-centric. Paul tells us, don't get in all these arguments and all these endless genealogies. He tells us, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, that there's some main things. Christ crucified, Christ raised. Like, we gotta keep it on the gospel. So just a quick one here, a little tidbit fact here. Ignatius, who was an early church father and writer, who was also a martyr, uh, he revealed in his writings that there, that there was conflict between uh, the Philadelphian church and some form of Judaism, uh, which continued into the second century. And these are always good people to go to, too, when you're studying. There are extra biblical witnesses. There's Josephus, the Christian or the Jewish historian. He was not a Christian, but we can look at his writings and see these things were taking place. So don't ever let anybody tell you the Bible is a vacuum and not only gets its information from inside of it, it doesn't. There are tons of extra biblical sources that tell us what was going on at that time and what was going on. So let's move on. Romans 3, 10 through 12. This is what he says. This is the promise. And for you note takers, you can write down, a Christ-centered church lives by the promises of God. A Christ-centered church lives by the promises of God. So verse 10 through 12, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Verse 10, Jesus will protect us. It's like I said a minute ago, there's no other better team like And I hate to use even those words. That seems to degrade it some, but he will protect us. He is the true one. He is the holy one. He does not lie to us. He will protect us. He says, you have kept my word about patient endurance. The believer's endurance is based off the model of Christ's own endurance. Um, What he went through, what he did, he endured for us. Now he asks us to endure patiently for him. It's gonna be worth it. Besides that, he's empowering us to do that. That's the beauty of being a Christian. People are like, well, you gotta do all these works and you gotta do these things and you gotta do that. The things he wants us to do, he's gonna give us the power to do them. But it's what? It's what I tell people all the time. One of the hardest things to do for us, surrender. We have such a hard time surrendering to Jesus to let him carry us through these things. The works come from us. But this is Jesus' command. <clears throat> this is Jesus' command to his followers in the gospels, in the gospels to per- perse- or persevere through trials. And I'll give you an example. When he's giving us the parable of the seed, which gives me such refreshing 
I love this stuff when I started seeing it in the scripture. So he's telling them about the seed that goes on the rocky ground and the seed that goes on the path and the seed, but he talks about the seed that goes into the good soil. And that's the one I want to focus on, the good soil. And it says it grows up. And the, the, the disciples are like, what do you mean by this? And he tells them later, and he goes, this is, <clears throat> he says, this is the good soul. These are the seed that went in the good soul, and they endured. They persevered. They kept on going with what they believed. They believed in him. It's that simple, and that gives me, that gives me hope as a Christian because it, he didn't say to them, oh, this is the seed that did everything perfectly, dotted all their I's, crossed all their T's, Worshiped me exactly how they were to exactly all the time. He said, these are those who patiently endured, who conquered, who persevered, who didn't give up. And we can only do that through him. We can only persevere with his help. So we must surrender to him. He promises to keep us from the hour of testing, which shall come upon the whole world. Verse 10. So this is where we could do a whole nother lesson. There's a lot going on here, but we're gonna keep it simple in this um, because this is no mere local persecution that he's talking about here. They're already being persecuted. They're already having problems. He's talking about another one. Uh, He's talking about the great tribulation itself. He's referring to that. uh, um, That will affect the whole world to test all those who dwell on the earth. It's pretty scary stuff. It's over in Revelation 12 and 13 is where that starts, it starts to talk about that taking place. It will take place on earth, earth for three and a half years. And I only say that to say, he's saying, look, don't worry about these things. I'm gonna keep you from it. Now, the, there's ways you can look at that. Will we be here for it or we will be here? I don't know. But either way, he promises to get us through it. And that's all we need to know. Like I said, that could be a whole different lesson. Uh, Listen, but this promise is for the church universal. It's for all of us, not just Philadelphia. It's for all of us. I'm gonna carry you through this. And times are coming. We see it every day. Everybody here, from the oldest to the youngest, you can see as life is changing. But he's gonna keep us through that. He promises us his power, which is made possible for us to become his people. We see that in verses seven and eight. He, it is his power that made it possible for us to become the church. And to maintain our status as his people, verses 8 through 9. He's going to continue to protect us spiritually from that coming tribulation. So that's what he's saying there. I've got you through this. Don't worry about it. Just continue to lift my, continue to keep the word and do not deny my name. Verse 11. His return is imminent, so say, stay strong. Uh, he says this, I'll, re, I'll re, read it there. I'm coming soon, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And that's not a threat. So when I was younger and I would read stuff like that, like I'm coming soon, it would kind of scare me because you know why? My focus was here. When preachers would be preaching in churches and they would start talking about this and not, I know all of you have this thought when you're younger. Well, I've got all these things to see and do. What if he comes back before I get these things done? But as you get older, you realize those things are irrelevant. They're nice things. You can enjoy them. And he's not threat. He's, this is not a threat. This is encouragement. He's saying it's going to be tough, but I'm on my way and nothing can stop that. He's saying, I've got you. No matter what happens, but I'm, I am coming back. Don't think I've abandoned you. Don't think that I've forgotten about you. I am coming back. 
Daniel Aiken says this, and I wanted to quote him because it sounded so good. He says this, I am, I am coming quickly is not a threat of judgment, but a promise of deliverance, fast on the heels of verse 10. Because his coming is imminent, any day, any time, they should hold on to what they have. And I know there were some people here that when they saw that, I'm going to break from his quote real quick. When they see that, they go, steal my crown? That's scary wording. Back to his quote. Um, <clears throat> because his coming is imminent, imminent any day, any time, they should hold on to what they have, his word, his name, his promise of deliverance, that no one may take their crown. Loss of salvation is nowhere in view here. Some people see that. When they see that crown taken, they think that's the crown of salvation. Loss of salvation is nowhere in view, for that could never be taken. But Satan or evil men could rob them of future reward if they get their eyes off Jesus or if they yield to the temptation to deny his name or just disobey his word. Right? That's what it's saying. Like, because we get distracted so easy. I am so convinced the older I get, we spend most of our time in distraction. I think that's the enemy's number one tool is distraction. Whether, I mean, we can pick on phones and computers, but it's everything from our hobbies to, oh, no, you know what? Let's leave those things alone. Inside the church, inside Christendom, we fight and argue and pick over endless genealogies. I'm gonna use that word from Paul's. We get so distracted. The enemy keeps us so distracted. Some things worthy, some things are just secondary when we could be sharing the gospel and witnessing. We stay distracted. And that is, and we also get, it causes us to be off track. Those crowns. Do you know what the crown? So if, the, if, you're, if you're just coming to church and you're hearing about Jesus and you're, you might have, the enemy might have been like, see, he talked about the gold crown. All these people care about is getting a bunch of good stuff. It has nothing to do with that. And to be honest with you, I'm just, I mean, does that even matter? For me, it's having that crown. If I get one, you know, see, it's like this humbling thing that you're gonna go, I would not have this without him. And I think he's talking about just... I mean, I don't even get into that, but that most believers honestly come to a place where they will lay that crown down at Jesus' feet. It'll be so great to be in his presence. It'll be so awesome to be around him. He is just saying this. He's saying, stay with it. There's a crown waiting at the finish line. Verse 12, Jesus will secure us forever. He says this, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. When we conquer and overcome, Jesus will honor us by giving us a permanent home and a permanent mark as his. I was thinking about this. You ever see uh, people with the tattoos of like their kids, uh, footprints or stuff like that. I've always wondered, is that actually the footprint? Like, do they do that? Or is that just like a, anyway, like the, the footprint or they'll have their kids' names or their faces on their arms or whatever. You're like, I wonder if their kids appreciate that though. Like when they're in their teens or their kids can be like, that looks nothing like, you know, or it starts to, yeah, we'll stay away from that. But, but he's, so he's giving you a permanent mark as his. I think that's actually a week, what I just talked about. Like the, the mark he's making is on you. It's like in Toy Story, Andy's toys have Andy on the bottom, right? He's putting his mark on us. He's putting his name on us. 
This is mine. It's taken care of. It's done. Um, you might ask this, what if I can't conquer? Don't think I haven't had days where I'm like, I don't think I can do this. I look at me, and there's the problem, right? I look at me, and I look at who I am, and I go, I don't have it. I don't have what it takes. And he's like, you're right, but I do. Hold on to the cross. I think about this all the time. I used to hear these street preachers, and they would say, cling to the cross, run to the cross, or I'd read about them in books. And it doesn't make sense till the deeper you get in, you know, that's your only hope. Cling to the cross. Fall at the base of it and just hold on. What if I can't conquer? It is Christ who, it is Christ who strengthens you, Philippians 4, 13. For John tells us, the same guy who's taking this letter down, he tells us in 1 John 5, 4 through 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You're a conqueror. If you've been born of God, you're a conqueror. Sorry, I interrupted his scripture. He goes on to say, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? You're a conqueror. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus and surrender, I had a minister, I think I've mentioned this before when I was younger, and he said, surrender, he said, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. He said, you're just putting your hands up. You're saying, I'm done. You ever seen that in old war footage when people are surrendering and, and you think, oh, I bet they're sad and they're upset. But when you're in like World War I or War II and it's been going on year after year after year, there's actually a relief on those guys. I'm through. I'm through fighting. I'm through fighting against you, God. I'm through wrestling against you. I surrender to what you want, which are good things. When people are like, well, he just wants to put a bunch of rules on you and you can't do anything. Like what? Not kill people? That's a pretty decent commandment, right? I like it. I appreciate it when people don't kill me or try to. Great commandment. Don't lie. I love it when people don't lie to me. And I'm almost positive they love it when I don't lie to them. God's not putting anything in it that's not reasonable. It's to protect you. I mean, anyway, <clears throat> the promises to those who overcome or conquer are fourfold. First, your pillar in the temple of God. So one author put it this way, just as massive pillars supported ancient temples, so the believers will be secure in their position in God's heavenly temple. That's pretty refreshing. <laughs> like, especially when you see these, these temples that are still in Rome and stuff, and those pillars are just still standing there. We're secure. Second, name of God. God's name is a reflection of his character. Having his name written on us symbolizes having his character permanently inscribed on our hearts and our lives. We're his. We're gonna be like him more and more. He's promised. Third, the name of the city of God. We are destined for the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And once again, for those people who are like, well, all they talk about is streets of gold. I don't know any Christian that's ever been like, man, let's talk about them streets of gold. Most Christians are like, man, I'll just be so glad when I get out of this place. I just want to be with my Lord and Savior. 
If we got dirt floors, I'm fine with it. Like, it's just not a thing. It's a symbolization of how great this is going to be, how much God has prepared for us. We are destined for a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, where the church will reign triumphant. Our right of citizenship has, has already been guaranteed. Get the ultimate passport. You do not have to renew it. You don't have to worry about losing it. It's been written on you. Our right of citizenship is in heaven. Fourth, Christ's new name. This indicates full revelation of his character. He is not ashamed of us. He is so proud of us when we love and just seek him, which he does all this in us. He is the greatest father, brother, sister, as he says. You know what this all makes me think of? Uh, uh, verses 10 through 12 makes me think of James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And I'm not just plugging the church there. Steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You can only stand steadfast with him. The pressure is taken off your shoulder. Trust and follow him. Anyway, exhortation. We're closing out here. Revelation 3.13, it's the very last one. Um, I wanted to isolate a little bit. He says, and he says this to all seven churches. Um, He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear? Listen to what the Spirit's saying. One in the text, this. Everything's right here. But on top of that, he dwells in you. He rebukes you. He chastises you. He encourages you. And this is all, all the scriptures further proof. It's not just for Philadelphia. It's for all of us. Okay, final word. And we're gonna actually, what we're gonna do here in a second is uh, when I pray before we take communion or as we take communion, I'm just gonna ask the Holy Spirit that you just give him permission, not that you can give him permission for anything, but that you just say, is there anything you wanna say to my heart? It's for you, it's not for me. Maybe you already know. Maybe he's already been saying it and you've just been ignoring it. Final word, one commentator concerning why Jesus was pleased with this church at Philadelphia says this. He says, I suspect this was due in large part to the exalted view and love they had for Jesus and the gospel. We get that from verse seven right off the bat. Let me read that again. Their exalted view and love they had for Jesus and the gospel. They loved Jesus and he loved them. So we're a church on a mission. If you ain't got it by now, it's our witness and our mission. That's kind of like what's coming through to this church in Philadelphia that he's commending them for. Now, there's an open door before us. We're in this open door. Like Philadelphia, Asheville is a gateway. We're not just, but we're not just a gateway for the east. First of all, it frustrates me a little bit, but just Larry was telling me the other day how people are coming from all over. It's like 300% increase in people coming here. I mean, I wish God would roll it back a little, like 1% or 2%. It would help the housing prices for sure. But, but, but people are coming from everywhere, the east, the north, the south, the west, everywhere. We have an opportunity. 
Daniel Aiken says this. He says, certain traits characterize a great commission church for which Christ opens doors that no one, not even Satan, can shut. It entails how they see Christ, how they value the power of the gospel, and how they trust in and live by the promises of God. How do we see Christ? How do we revere his name? To quote a, quote a famous song, we are weak, but he is strong. I, don't, I guess they still sing that one. It's been a long time since I was in children's church. We are weak, but he is strong. He promises to keep us. And we need, hold on, he's coming. I don't know if it's gonna be tomorrow, next week, or in our grandchildren's childhood, but either way, we have a mission. It's been set before us, an open door that cannot be shut by the enemy. The only thing that can happen is we can refuse to partake in it, and then he's just gonna have someone else do it. He will not be stopped. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, So this is our time of communion. Uh, And if you don't know, if you're new to that or if you don't know about it, so we do communion, we take communion in just remembrance of what Christ has done for us. That's the simplest way to put it. Uh, When we we drink the juice or the wine and and take the the wafer, we're remembering um, his crucifixion, what he did for us, his blood that was shed for us to redeem us. It's just a time to remember who we were and what he's done for us. Now, if, if you're not a believer, there's no, there's no problem not, in not taking this. I, I think you shouldn't. I wouldn't. And if you have something against your brother or sister that you need to deal with, you probably need to deal with it. Maybe that's what the Holy Spirit's gonna speak to you about. So we're gonna do that, but what I'm gonna do is pray. And I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to just speak to us individually but some, just remind us of what's going on, what he wants to say to us, whether it be an encouragement or a rebuke. <clears throat> These altars are always open. Well, it's not necessarily an altar. Me and the elders have talked about that. But if there's ever a time that you just feel compelled, that you just need to be on your knees, it's, it's always there for you. So I'm gonna pray. And when I get done praying, I'm gonna sit down. And when I get back up and go and, and take communion, then that'll open up the communion tables. And you guys will figure it out. But <laughs> so there's like four places Starts in the back, comes to the front, and cycles around for the communion. So let me pray. Father God, I just come before you right now, and I thank you for your Holy Spirit. You've you've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to love on us and to teach us and guide us. Your word says that you give us teachers, but we don't, the Holy Spirit within us will guide us into all things. And so, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for everything you're doing, but I pray right now, Holy Spirit, Is there something we need to hear? Of course, the Word's got lots to say to us. We can always pick our Bibles up, but but, oh Lord, I just pray that um, you would just speak to our hearts. Is there something, a rebuke, or even just an exhortation or an encouragement, Lord? We would just be open to that. We would listen to your voice. I thank you for what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen.